This is Dom Bettinelli, the CEO of SQPN, with a brief but very important message. For more than a decade, SQPN has produced the Catholic faith and pop culture podcast that you love. We're a nonprofit organization, so it's only your generosity that lets us carry out our mission. We haven't run a fundraiser in two years, and that's why we need to ask for your help right now. Please make a pledge of whatever amount you can afford to help us continue providing your favorite podcasts, as well as exciting new ones we have planned. To make your pledge and find out about the free thank you gifts we'd like to send you, visit sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. Thank you for your generosity. May we hear from you today? You're listening to Episode 16 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries both natural and supernatural from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Uh, Folks, remember that uh, to help the show, we need you to like Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on Facebook, to retweet the episodes that we post on uh, Twitter, uh, at our our SQPN Twitter account at SQPN. Uh, also, to leave us comments, write reviews uh, wherever you you can see the like on Twitter or on Google Play. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Twitter. Uh, I'm sorry, on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, uh, and on YouTube. Where if you do subscribe, make sure to hit the bell to get notifications when a new episode goes live. And share the podcast with your friends. Help us grow the community of listeners. Uh, Jimmy, uh, you have a special message for our listeners. Right. So um, SQPN or StarQuest is doing its giving campaign right now. And we really need to hear from you uh, because we're a nonprofit organization. And a few months ago, we made the decision that we didn't want to just limp along doing a single podcast, we really wanted to fulfill our mission, which is to help bring people closer to Jesus. That's why we're called StarQuest. It's a reference to the Bethlehem star that led people to Jesus. And we do that by engaging pop culture uh, through uh, a Catholic perspective. So we talk about popular shows and movies and popular topics like the ones here on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. And so we decided to make the investment in what we needed to roll out a line of podcasts that would do this. And this is one of those. The reason you're listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World right now is because of that decision to invest in producing new podcasts, including this one. Um, But as a result of that, we have uh, labor costs and hosting costs and production costs of all different kinds. And so our funds are beginning to run low and we need your help to replenish them. The way to do that, if you like Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, if you like other podcasts that StarQuest produces, the way to help is go to sqpn.com. That's for StarQuest Production Network or StarQuest Podcast Network. sqpn.com slash give, G-I-V-E. And then just click on the Patreon button, become one of our regular Patreon subscribers. We have some mysterious gifts that we'd like to send you as thank yous for your support. One of them 
is uh, one of the best books on Area 51 that's out there, one of the more reliable ones. Another is uh, a book on the Fermi Paradox. Uh, you know, where are all the aliens? And it's got like 75 different solutions to that uh, question. And another is a course, uh, is an audio course that's very good on the mysterious Dead Sea Scrolls. So we'd love to send you uh, those thank you gifts for your support. We also want to include supporters on Patreon in other ways, like by uh, ha- having you help select upcoming topics for the show. We're going to be setting up a way to do that. And um, so we really want to thank our supporters. And for you to become one of them, all you need to do is go to sqpn.com slash give and uh, and become one of our regular monthly supporters on Patreon. We really do need to hear from you. If you want Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and the other StarQuest shows to keep going, please go there today, sqpn.com slash give. Thank you, Jimmy. Now, our topic today uh, is, uh, as I said at the top, Jesus's prophecy that the temple will be destroyed. But what, what was that, Jimmy? Well, so... During the course of his earthly ministry, Jesus made a number of predictions that are recorded in the Gospels. Probably the most famous is that he would uh, he would die and then rise from the dead. That's mentioned a few times in each Gospel, um, but not a lot of space is devoted to the prophecy itself. More space is devoted to the fulfillment of the prophecy. That's why we have the passion and resurrection narratives, and so that's why this prophecy, or one of the reasons this prophecy is famous. But besides that one, his most famous prophecy is that the Jewish temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. This was uh, the center of Jewish religious life for Jews all over the world at the time. Um, It was an extraordinarily important uh, religious uh, site, unlike other religions that could have a temple built anywhere. You know, if you were a Greco-Roman, you could build a temple to Zeus anywhere you wanted. But the one God of Israel had said, Jerusalem is it. This is the only authorized Jewish temple. Now, in fact, there were some temples elsewhere, um, which we can talk about on another episode. But this is the one that God authorized. It was incredibly important. It was also incredibly beautiful. And Jesus said, it's going to be destroyed. And that would have meant a huge cataclysm for the uh, for the Jewish nation and for Jews all over the world. And so consequently, more space is devoted to this prophecy in the Gospels than to any other prophetic claim Jesus makes. It's mentioned in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. It's the subject of a major prophetic discourse in each of those three Gospels. And the prophecy came true in AD 70. Um, So that's why there's no temple in Jerusalem today. This prophecy was fulfilled, and that's what we're talking about. And so then we we say, what is is the significance of this prophecy? Like, why is this such a big deal, the destruction of the temple, both then and today? One of the claims, because there are passages in the New Testament that seem to talk about a temple in the future, there are people who will claim that since the current temple has been destroyed, there's going to be a future rebuilt temple in its place, and that's going to be a major event in 
in biblical prophecy. This is a claim that is not only made by some Christians, it's also endorsed by some Jews. Uh, some people, of many people of the Jewish faith, expect there to be a new temple at some point. Some are even actively working for uh, a restored temple in the near future. Others will say, no, we shouldn't do that. It won't be until the Messianic age that the temple arrives and then God himself will give it to us. Um, but uh, it's a source of uh, debate both in the Jewish community and in the Christian community, whether there will be a new temple and what we should be doing with respect to that prophecy. And so those are our claims and counterclaims with the prophecy. Yeah, there's also um, another counterclaim. Obviously, not everybody agrees that there's going to be a future temple. Some people will say there's not, that all of the prophecies connected with the temple have been fulfilled. There's no future temple. And in fact, some people would go further and say God has no further particular dealings with the Jewish people. Interesting. Um, that they they no longer have a special place in his God's in his plan that's distinct from his plans for other people. Okay, so uh, where 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 is the uh, are these prophecies in in the Gospels? If we want to go find them, the the places that you want to look, the principal places are Mark chapter thirteen. Mark is generally agreed by biblical scholars, and I agree with this also. Uh, it's the first gospel that was written, so it's this is the more primitive version of of the uh, prophetic discourse where he discusses this. So Mark chapter thirteen. And then you want to look at the parallel passages uh, in Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25, and then also in Luke. It's in Luke chapter 21. All three of these uh, are accounts of what's known as the Olivet Discourse. And it's called that because Jesus gave it while he was on the Mount of Olives, which is just across the Kidron Valley from the temple. So that's why Jesus is talking about the temple right there. If you look at the beginning of Mark 13, um, it, it says uh, that as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one, so they've just been there, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what beautiful and what wonderful buildings. And this is a reference to the fact that at this time, the temple was indeed really beautiful. And And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So he's saying the whole thing's going to be dismantled. And then continuing in verse three, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will this be and what will be the sign that these things are all to be accomplished? So that's the question. When is the temple going to be destroyed mm -hmm. and what are what's what are the what's going to be the sign that the temple is about to be destroyed? That's the subject of the Olivet discourse and that's what Jesus proceeds to answer. And the the then the question is is, is Jesus's prophecies often had, you know, sometimes had uh, immediate result and also a long-term result that has something to do with the second coming and the fulfillment of all prophecy. Right. And that's one of the things that has tended to confuse people about these passages because it does use language in the context of the Olivet Discourse that can be understood as if it's referring to the second coming. And um, and Jesus even says, you know, this is all going to happen within this generation. And so some people have looked at that and said, well, 
but the second coming didn't happen in his generation. So they, some of them have used that to cast out on, um, on the gospels and on Jesus as a prophet. Other people have looked at it and said, well, part of this is then dealing with the destruction of the temple. And then there must be a gap of some kind that lurches over the rest of church history up to the second coming. And so there's kind of a, 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 a leap prophetically forward in this text. Another option is saying, well, part of this text, the text as a whole does apply to the first century, but there's also kind of a second application that still pertains to the future. And then there's another perspective that says, actually, at least in Mark, it even if there is a future echo, that's really not what's being discussed. The coming that's described here doesn't describe the second coming where Jesus judges the entire world and you have the resurrection of the dead. It doesn't mention that. It just mentions Jesus coming in judgment on Jerusalem. Mm. And this is a familiar figure from the Old Testament of God coming in judgment on a people, including on his own people when they have sinned. And obviously the destruction of the temple is given that it's God's temple, this would only happen on account of human sin. And it would only happen if the uh, if the people of Israel have sinned. And so it would be natural for uh, Jesus to use this Old Testament imagery of God coming on the clouds in judgment on his people and apply it to the destruction of the temple. And so really, it's not talking about the second coming. It's talking about the coming in judgment at the destruction of the temple. Okay. So, and then you said that this, this actually occurred in history, the, that mm-hmm. in AD 70, the prophecy came true. Uh, this, what, what happened? What, what, how did it get destroyed? Who destroyed it? Well, so basically, um, the Romans uh, were ruling Israel through uh, military governors, Pontius, or through governors. Pontius Pilate was one of those. And there were later ones who, uh, like Felix and Festus, um, and Albinus, who had different levels of popularity. Felix was viewed as kind of corrupt. Uh, Festus was viewed as an effective administrator who was better. Albinus was viewed as a really as a disaster. And by the AD 60s, so this is about th- a little more than 30 years after the crucifixion, the uh, a lot of people in Jewish society had gotten really fed up. And there were a lot of tensions between Jews and Gentiles who were living in the land of Israel. There's a famous uh, incident that was one of the incidents that led to the start of the Jewish war um, up in Galilee, where you had Jews and Gentiles living together. And a Gentile took a pot in front of a Jewish synagogue and flipped it over and sacrificed a bird right there in front of the synagogue, which was like a huge provocation to the local Jews, and it started a riot. And then there was also rioting in Jerusalem, and the Roman governor acted harshly. And this led to many people uh, wanting to stop sacrifices for Gentiles at the temple. This is something that uh, people, a lot of people don't know, but it was actually very common for Gentiles to offer sacrifices and gifts at the Jewish temple. I mean, they believed in multiple gods. Why not honor the Jewish one too? Right. And and normally, uh, the temple authorities had no problem with that. Uh, they even had like drinking vessels that had been donated to the temple by the Roman Emperor Augustus and his wife Livia. 
And every day they offered a sacrifice for the for the Roman emperor at the temple. But given the tensions, a lot of people said, no, we need to stop that. Uh, we need to cut off having anything to do with the Gentiles. We need to kick them out of our land. And thus, in AD 66, uh, many people in Israel rebelled, and we had the beginning of the first great Jewish revolt. Um, this led to a conflict that went on for a number of years, <clears throat> which has a fascinating history we won't go into today. <laughs> but uh, in AD 70, or by AD 70, the Romans surrounded Jerusalem, uh, which was stuffed with pilgrims who had come for Passover. There were more than a million people there. There was kind of a civil war going on within the city by different Jewish factions, which weakened uh, their situation, as did the fact that some of the rebels decided to set fire to their grain stores as a way of motivating the people to fight to the bitter end. So they torched their own food supply. <laughs> and then and then the Romans started breaching the walls of Jerusalem and they ended up destroying the temple. Josephus, the Jewish historian, was there for this. He at this point had been captured by the Romans and was serving as a translator for them at the fall of Jerusalem's imploring the rebels to give up. Jerusalem says, I mean, Jer um, Josephus says that um, Tacitus, who was at the time the Roman general, he later became emperor, but Josephus claims, and no historians really believe this, that Tacitus tried to save the temple and that just a, uh, a an accident by a kind of rogue Roman soldier led to it being set on fire and then dismantled. But historians think, no, this was deliberate Roman policy. They wanted to stamp out the center of Jewish religious life to prevent it from being used as the center of future rebellions. Okay. And so the Romans destroyed the temple in AD 70, 37 years after Jesus' prophecy, and thus within the same generation. And there's a lot of, um, be, I mean, because of the, the, the place of the temple in, in Jewish culture, Jewish religion, uh, it engenders a lot, at the time, it engendered a lot of um, interesting approaches to it uh, what i'm trying to get is like there was a lot of symbolic and apocalyptic language uh involved yeah. around this yeah this is this is par for the course in uh biblical prophecy there's a lot of symbolic language that's that gets used and this is one reason that some people have um have looked at jesus's olivet discourse and said oh this is all about the second coming because there is a lot of kind of dramatic apocalyptic language. But when you study the way prophetic language is used elsewhere in the Bible, you find a lot of times it uses this kind of cosmic cataclysm language, like the sun is going to be darkened and the moon is not going to give its light and stuff like that. And um, if you study it closely, you realize this language isn't meant to be taken literally. And in fact, this is something that biblical scholars, including Jewish ones, have talked about. Um, there are some Old Testament prophecies, for example, against the nation of Edom, where God says, you know, about Edom, I'm gonna, the sun's not going to give its light and the moon is going to be turned to blood and stuff like that. And it's really a symbol of, and the stars are going to fall from the sky. And it's really a symbol of military defeat for Edom. It's kind of a psychologization of language. It's going to be as if your defeat's going to be so crushing that it's as if the sun isn't shining and as is as if the moon is 
turn to blood and with all the blood of your soldiers and mm. your princes are all going to fall from their places like stars from the heavens okay. and things like this. Um, so it's not surprising that we see Jesus using that kind of language because it's used elsewhere in the Bible, including in the Old Testament. That's not to say, though, that there weren't some strange signs that reportedly surrounded the destruction of the temple that anticipated it. The Jewish historian Josephus, in his account of the Jewish war, creatively titled Jewish War, um, <laughs> has a discussion of these. If you want to see it, and we'll have a link in the show notes, but it's in book five, uh, book six, chapter five, section three of his uh, Jewish war. And I'm going to read to you. It's a little extended, but it's worth reading. Um, Josephus is talking about the period leading up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, thus it was that the wretched people, meaning the Jerusalemites, were deluded at that time by charlatans and pretended messengers of the deity. while they So there are false prophets trying to buck up people's spirits. Um, while they neither heeded nor believed the manifest portents that foretold the coming desolation, but as if thunderstruck and bereft of eyes and mind, they disregarded the plain warnings of God. So according to Josephus, God sent the people in Jerusalem plain warnings that something terrible was going to happen. And then he names several of them. He says, so it was when a star resembling a sword stood over the city. And I'm not exactly sure what he means. To me, that sounds kind of like a comet, a star that looks like a sword. But then he says, and a comet, which continued for a year. Mm. So he says there was a comet. Maybe there were two comets. I don't know. But he says one of the comets or one comet continued to, to be in the sky for a year. So again, when before the revolt and commotion that led to the war, so this is even before the war, at the time when the people were assembling for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's Passover, on the eighth of the month of Xanthicus, at the ninth hour of the night, so brilliant a light shone around the altar and the sanctuary that it seemed to be broad daylight, and this continued for half an hour. So right there in the temple, you had this preternatural light according to Josephus, shining in the sanctuary. And he says, by the inexperienced, this was regarded as a good omen, but by the sacred scribes, it was at once interpreted in accordance with later events. <clears throat> at that same feast, so that same Passover, he says, a cow that had been brought by, some, by someone for sacrifice gave birth to a lamb in the midst of the court of the temple. And I'm not sure exactly what to make of that report. Uh, it's certainly possible that a, a cow could have been could have given birth to some kind of deformed thing that people, you know, took to be look like a lamb. Right. Things like that sometimes happen. Uh, moreover, the eastern gate of the inner court it was of brass and very massive, and when closed toward evening, could scarcely be moved by twenty men. Uh, fastened with iron-bound bars, it had bolts which were sunk to a great depth into a threshold consisting of a solid block of stone. This gate was observed at the sixth hour of the night to have opened of its own accord. Creepy. The watch. <laughs> creepy. Yeah. The watchmen of the temple ran and reported the matter to the captain, and he came up and with difficulty succeeded in shutting it. 
This again to the uninitiated seemed the best of omens, as they supposed that God had opened to them the gate of blessings. So they're going to be blessed by this. Uh, But the learned understood that the security of the temple was dissolving of its own accord, and that the opening of the gate meant a present to the enemy. So like God's opening it for their enemies, interpreting the portent in their own minds as indicative of coming desolation. Again, not many days after the festival, on the 21st of the month of Artemisium, there appeared a miraculous phenomenon passing belief. Indeed, Josephus says, what I am about to relate would, I imagine, have been deemed a fable were it not for the narratives of eyewitnesses and for the subsequent calamities which deserve to be so signalized. For before sunset through all parts of the country... Chariots were seen in the air and armed battalions hurtling through the clouds and encompassing the cities. So Hmm. kind of sounds like a coming in judgment on the clouds. Yes. Like the one we hear about in the Olivet Discourse. Mm. Moreover, at the feast, which is called Pentecost, the priests on entering the inner courts of the temple by night as their custom was in the discharge of their ministrations reported that they were conscious first of a commotion and a din, so a big noise, and after that of a voice of a host say our, saying, we are departing hence, or we're leaving here. And that uh, that's very significant because there was a belief both in Jewish and Roman circles that you couldn't destroy a temple unless its tutelary deity left it. Hmm. And so the mean the meaning this would have, if you're a priest in the Jerusalem temple, there's a big noise and you hear, we are leaving this place. <laughs> okay, who's leaving this place? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's God is abandoning you. I'm out of here. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Um, but Josephus says a further portent was even more alarming. I really like this one. This one is yeah. so cool. And it has a funny ending, although it's tragic. It's also funny. Um, four years before the war, When the city was enjoying profound peace and prosperity, there came to the feast at which it was the custom, at which it is the custom of all Jews to erect tabernacles to God. So this is the feast of Sukkot or tabernacles. One Jesus, son of Ananias or Jesus bar Hananiah, a rude peasant. So this is just some hick from the country who standing in the temple suddenly began to cry out a voice from the east a voice from the West, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and the sanctuary, a voice against the bridegroom and the bride, a voice against all the people. Day and night, he went about all the alleys with this cry on his lips. Some of the leading citizens, incensed at these ill-omened words, arrested the fellow and severely chastised him. (laughs) But he, without a word on his own behalf or for the private ear of those who smote him, only continued his cries as before. Thereupon, the magistrate, supposing, as was indeed the case, that the man was under some supernatural impulse, brought him before the Roman governor. There, although flayed to the bone with scourges, So they like scourged his back enough you could see his ribs. Mm -hmm. Uh, He neither sued for mercy nor shed a tear, but merely introducing the most mournful of variations into his ejaculation, meaning his cry, responded to each stroke with woe to Jerusalem. When Albinus, the governor, 
asked him who and whence he was and why he uttered these cries, he answered him never a word, but unceasingly reiterated his dirge over the city until Albinus pronounced him a maniac and let him go. Uh, during the whole period up to the outbreak of the war. So he started doing this four years before the war. So AD 62. Um, he, during the whole period up to the outbreak of the war, he neither approached nor was seen talking to any of the citizens, but daily like a prayer that he had conned, repeated his lament, woe to Jerusalem. He neither cursed any of those who beat him from day to day, nor blessed those who offer him, offered him food. To all men, that melancholy passage was his one reply. His cries were loudest at the festivals. So for seven years and five months, he continued his wail, his voice never flagging, nor his strength exhausted, until in the siege, having seen his presage verified, <clears throat> so he's seen his prophecy come true, uh, he found his rest. For while going on his round and shouting in piercing tones from the wall, so he's walking around the wall of Jerusalem up on top of it, saying, woe once more to the city and woe to the people and to the temple, as he, as he added at last word, and woe to me also, a stone hurled from the ballista struck him and killed him on the spot. <laughs> so... So with these ominous words still upon his lips, he passed away. So Jesus, son of Ananias, I mean, it's tragic, but it's also funny. He's yeah. walking around on the top of the wall going, woe to Jerusalem, woe to the people, woe to the city. He sees a rock coming at him. Woe also to me, squash. And that's the end. <laughs> Woe to me, clonk. Clonk, yep. Wow. So according to Josephus, there were. Now, what you think of these, how many of these are reliable is up to debate. But according to Josephus, there were people who were claiming that these various signs had occurred uh, that were premonitory warnings about the destruction of the temple. And that was one of the things the disciples had asked about in the Olivet Discourse were, what's the sign going to be? So the Jesus son of Ananias story sounds, I mean, it, it, it's a lot like Jesus son of Joseph. I mean, there's... It, in, in certain respects, yeah, it differs in others. Right. Um, and one of the principal differences is it's set 29 years later. Right. And Joseph is, uh, knows who Jesus of, of son of Joseph is because he talks about him in other places. So Jesus was, we shouldn't make too much of the name Jesus because this was one of the most common male names in Israel at the time. There were bunches of Jesuses, um, including more than one in the New Testament. Because it's, um, it's essentially a form of Joshua, right? Joshua, yeah. Okay. Um, and also, it sometimes gets translated as Jason in English from Greek to keep it from being too similar to Jesus. Okay. But it's all the same name in Aramaic. Um, also, uh, this is exactly what would happen to anybody who started prophesying the doom of Jerusalem. You know, they'd get hauled before the Roman authorities to find out, are they a madman or are they a rebel? Right. Well, he's not a rebel, so let him go. He's just a madman. Um, and, you know, so this is this is exactly what you would expect to happen. And if you're going to get punished, you're going to get flayed with scourges. I mean, that's just. Yeah, yeah okay. exactly. Um, all right. And, and so. Uh, I have heard, by the way, that, you know, uh, people kind of advance some theories about some of these imagery, like one, the chariots in the air and armed battalions hurtling to the clouds uh, is an alien invasion. I've heard that yeah. one. Yeah. Well, they didn't invade. The Romans did. <laughs> right. Maybe the Romans <laughs> were in league with the aliens. Uh, yeah. Um, 
there was a Monty Python movie that <laughs> that had yeah. a, had a sequence that related to that, but I'll leave that uh-huh. for, for for the listener to find out. Uh, so, uh, I mean, we'll start with the faith perspective, right? Because I mean, yeah. that's really where this is this prophecy's uh, situated. So, what's the faith yeah. perspective? Yeah, some of our topics like JFK assassination, that one's almost all reason perspective, not so much faith. This is the reverse. Mm-hmm. Most of the implications here deal with the faith perspective. Yeah. So from a Jewish perspective, the destruction of the temple was cataclysmic. It um, it signaled a, a, a fundamental shift in how Judaism operated up to this point. This was the center of Jewish religious life. It was the place of animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice was central to the rituals needed to be performed to make atonement for sin. Um, And so this was a big deal in Jewish religion. And you could only Um, sacrifice the animals in the temple. At at the temple, right. right. So this prompted a huge crisis. Uh, intellectually in devout Jewish circles. How do we deal with this? We can't go to the temple to make sacrifice. How do we find atonement? Uh, How do we make atonement for our sins? And eventually it was concluded that um, in addition to animal sacrifice, also things like works of mercy are said to atone for sin and mm. prayer. And so it's kind of like uh, you can you can make do. If you can't do the animal sacrifices, you can still atone through prayer and mercy and things like that. Okay. Um, so uh, it also led, the Jewish war led to the destruction of several sects of Jews who existed at the time, the Sadducees, for example, were closely tied to the temple complex and they did not survive the Jewish war. After the Jewish war, the Sadducees died out. The Essenes, who may, who probably wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, they also, they were kind of a fragile community. They did, they did not survive the Jewish war. They died out. The ones who did survive were the Pharisees. They were the more popular group with the people of, with the ordinary people. Most people, most Jewish people, even in Palestine, were not Pharisees, but they were the ones who were kind of the popular intellectual leaders. And they were resilient enough that they did survive um, under, um, under several uh, early rabbinic leaders. They ended up codifying the oral law of the Pharisees as the Mishnah which then kind of developed into modern rabbinic Judaism with the development of the Talmud as a set of commentaries on the Mishnah. Um, and so the the destruction of the temple was pivotal in the development of modern Judaism. It would not exist in the form it does today if it was not for the temple being destroyed. Hmm. Then there are, uh, you know, there's always been the hope in the Jewish community for a rebuilt temple. And some Jews are very much in favor of that. Some want to rebuild it now. Some want to restore animal sacrifices in it. Like there's a prophecy about uh, uh, in the Old Testament, there is an animal known as the red heifer that's used, whose ashes are used in the ordination of Jewish priests. And so there's been kind of a hunt for the red heifer in some of these Jewish circles today. Um, Also, uh, some Jews don't want animal sacrifices. They may want a rebuilt temple, but only as a house of prayer, not as a house of sacrifice. Hmm. So this is a, a lively and uh, kind of controversial subject of debate in modern Judaism as well. Then, uh, also from the faith perspective, from a Christian perspective, um, there's significance for us Christians as well. One of the things you find when you study 
the Gospels uh, carefully is that Jesus identifies himself with the temple. And so this is an example of that is in John chapter two. You look at verses 19 to 21. Uh, Jesus says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll, I'll rebuild it. And his audience initially interprets him to be speaking about the Jerusalem temple. But in hindsight, John tells us he meant the temple of his body. Right. So when that was destroyed on the cross, he then rebuilt it or raised rose from the dead in three days. So you see how he's identifying himself with the temple. And that theme is also present in the Synoptic Gospels. One way it manifests is in the tearing of the veil. Now, a lot of people have a lot of questions about what does it mean when Jesus dies on the cross and the veil of the temple gets torn? Some people will say things like, oh, well, it means the, the Jewish uh, sacrificial economy is over, or that the um, the barrier between man and God is gone, and so we don't need priests anymore. You know, some right. people critical of the Catholic Church will say that. Well, it's possible that it means a number of different things. The end, of the, signaling the end of the Jewish sacrificial economy. In some sense, that's actually a safe bet, even though the apostles continued, including Saint Paul, to offer sacrifice at the Jewish temple for a while. Um, but there's another way to look at it. If you look, actually that I think has been somewhat neglected. If you look at Mark 15, at the moment of Jesus's death, this is in Mark 15, 37, <clears throat> it says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So Jesus's breath is departing from him. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mm. So we know his, Jesus has identified his body with the temple and his body has been torn in two, and the temple's curtain has been torn in two, and Jesus's breath, his his spirit, including, you know, he, his human spirit is linked to his divine spirit. His spirit has left his body. What does that suggest is leaving the temple? Right. It looks like another sign. It's not so much the veils being torn to let men into the dwelling of God. The veils being torn as God leaves the temple. Right, or forsakes it in some sense. Because they believe the spirit, the, the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God dwelled in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Right. And, and the fact that it says that the, the veil was torn from top to bottom. Suggests it, divine action. Right. God's the, tearing the veil. Right. A, a, a man can't go in and tear the veil from top. The veil was way too high you, unless yeah. you get a ladder. You can't tear from top to bottom. You, they would have to tear from the bottom up. So this is the spirit sort of breaking out through the veil, just like the breath leaving the body of Christ and the temple being an, an analog to Christ's body. Right. And, and it, it then also foreshadows its eventual destruction. Okay. All right. So, um, so that's significant for us. Uh, also, the fact that Jesus uh, prophesied this, you know, it's a validated prophecy. Mm -hmm. It happened. Uh, he may not have been the only person to predict it. He may he, he apparently wasn't even the only person named Jesus to predict it. <laughs> but but it is a, a validated prophecy, um, and it happened within the generation that right. he said it would. So that's another validated aspect of the prophecy. Um, in terms of the claim that some people make that therefore God has no more special dealings with the Jewish people. And that, you know, the church has completely replaced Israel. That's not supported by scripture or by the teaching of the Catholic Church. Um, where, while there is a sense in which the church is 
a new Israel or a broader Israel that includes both Jews and Gentiles. That's something Paul talks about, for example, in Romans 3 and 4. Um, he also indicates God still has a special place for the Jewish people in his plan. That's something he talks about in Romans 9 to 11. Uh, you might look especially, I think, uh, Romans 11, verse, uh, chapter 11, verses 11 to 29 is a good place to look. I won't read all that to you, but Romans chapters 9 to 11, he continues to talk about the place of the Jewish people in God's plan. Then there's the question of, will we have a temple in the future? Well, <clears throat> if you look at the Olivet Discourse in Mark and in Luke, it looks like all of the discourse is about the events leading up to AD 70. It doesn't look like the, uh, the the second coming is really in there, although there could be a prophetic echo of all this at the second coming. Where the second coming does seem to get mixed into the Olivet Discourse is in Matthew. In Matthew, the disciples don't just ask about the destruction of the temple. They also ask, what is to be the sign of your coming? Which sounds like the second coming. And it's then at the end of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a series of parables, like the parable of the ten virgins, or the parable of the sheep and the goats, that seem to go beyond the destruction of the temple and talk in symbolic terms about the end of the world. Matthew, who is known for collecting up different sayings of Jesus on the same topic and putting them together in his big speech, it looks like that's what's happened here. He took the Olivet Discourse from Mark and added these prophetic parables about the end of the world. And to set that up, he has the apostles ask Jesus an additional question about mm. the end of the world. Um, so that's, it. to my mind, it looks like that's the best way to understand how the second coming relates to all of this in Matthew. But there is another passage that should be considered that's not in the Gospels that may indicate there's a um, future temple. In 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, Paul talks about a mysterious figure called the man of sin, who he says will take his seat in God's temple and proclaim himself to be God. And this is something that didn't happen in the, uh, not in any straightforward way in the first century. Some people have, have uh, taken God's temple in this verse to be symbolic of the church, but that's not the natural understanding a first century Jew would have of the phrase, the temple of God. To them, it would have meant the temple of God in Jerusalem. And since it looks like, although you could argue this has been fulfilled in some ways, it doesn't quite look like it has. And so you could argue maybe there will be another temple in the future in Jerusalem, and this will have its fulfillment then. It's certainly a possibility coming from a faith perspective, but I think we need to be a little cautious rather than ad just adamantly declaring it. Okay. Well, that, that's quite a lot to digest in that. Uh, and there's so much more to say. Um, so, so that's really the faith perspective, though. So um, what can we say from the, the perspective, uh, the reason perspective, say like a historical perspective? Um, especially given that, you know, we, we know we have we've talked about the history of the war uh, and the destruction. Um, yeah. But there are there other perspective uh, parts of the reason perspective. 
Yeah, well, so from a reason perspective, its its significance is really historical. And we touched on some aspects of that, like how it played a pivotal course in the future history of Jerusalem, of, of not just Jerusalem, but of J- Judaism. Um, there is also, though, there are also some other things that are very interesting of a historical nature, like the implications it has for the dating of the books of the New Testament, hmm. because this is a big event. And if you look at the Gospels, you know, Jesus makes a number of predictions. This is one of the big ones. Also big is his um, uh, he'll die and rise again. Um, and there are even a few others. Well, what tends to happen when the evangelists record one of his prophecies is they then record its fulfillment. So Jesus several times predicts, I'm going to I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised. Well, all of those things are recorded in the Passion and Resurrection narratives in the Gospels. So they record the fulfillment of Jesus's prophecies so we can see that um, he was a true prophet. And they did that with other prophecies, too. They would also record their fulfillment if they had been fulfilled at the time the evangelist was writing, because and it's in their interest to do that, to show that he's a true prophet. So if they don't record the fulfillment of a prophecy, like, for example, with the second coming, then it's reasonable to infer that prophecy had not yet been fulfilled at the time they were writing. So they can't say, and it happened just like Jesus said it would. Mm. And so since they don't record the fulfillment of the second coming, it's reasonable to conclude the Gospels were all written before the second coming, but they also don't record the fulfillment of his prophecy about the destruction of the temple. And that would suggest the Gospels, at least the three synoptic Gospels that report the destruction, the prophecy um, in a clear way, that they were all written before the destruction of the temple. And um, there are other reasons to think that, too, which I won't go into here. But that's one significant data point that can have a bearing on the dates of the Gospels. Mm. Also, the book of Hebrews is very significant in this regard because part of the, part of the point a big part of the point of the book of Hebrews is to urge Jewish Christians not to abandon their Christian faith and go back to practicing Judaism and Hebrews has an extensive discussion of how Christ and his priesthood is superior to the um to the priesthood of Jerusalem and how the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins the way the blood of Christ can, and how um, every priest, including the priests at Jerusalem, stand ministering every day with some sacrifice to offer, and he talks about it as if they're still being offered. Well, all of that points to Hebrews being written before AD 70, because it totally would have suited the author's point to say, y'all shouldn't go back to Judaism because look at God's judgment on the temple that's just happened. Right. You know, I mean, that shows yeah. you. Yeah, that would have just cinched his argument. He wouldn't have so to say, he, don't go back to sacrificing animals if they weren't sacrificing animals still. 
Yeah, and he would have totally been able to say, look, that's God's judgment on, right. on Judaism as it was practiced. We're not to do that anymore. Okay. And so um, that points to Hebrews being written before 70. Also, in the book of Revelation, we have at one point, John is commanded to uh, get up and measure the temple and those who worship there. And it's clear in context, he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. So that would point to Revelation being written before AD 70. And so the, the fact that we have a hard date where we know the temple was destroyed uh, provides evidence that we can use in figuring out when the different books of the New Testament were written. There, is, um, there was a British scholar named John A.T. Robinson who wrote an entire book called Redating the New Testament, which is fortunately now back in print, um, that uh, argued that basically the entire New Testament was written before AD 70. Mm. And, um, and the fact of uh, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was one of the key points in his argument for that. So I'll have a link in the show notes to redating the New Testament so you can read his argument for yourself. Excellent. So uh, what's the bottom line regarding these, the, the pro- Jesus's prophecy about the temple being destroyed and the fact that it was destroyed? For me, uh, the temple, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 was a major event that impacted the future courses of both Judaism and Christianity, and it deserves to be studied carefully. Excellent. Okay. So uh, we'll have, uh, as always, we'll have further resources in the show notes. So what are, what are other, you mentioned one of the books, Jimmy, what other resources do we have? Yeah, so I have um, I have links to Josephus, uh, an article on him in Wikipedia, so you can get more background on who he was. I also have a link to archive.org where you can read the passage uh, that I read from the Jewish War about the different signs um, that preceded the destruction of the temple in his account. Also, I've got a link to a modern translation of the Jewish War um, there are some older translations that are a little harder to read. There is in particular one um, by a guy named Whiston that's actually several centuries old, and is it's the most common one you find, but it's really hard to read. So I uh, included a link to one that's a modern penguin translation that you can get on Amazon that's a really good one if you want to read the whole ex- very interesting and exciting course of the Jewish war. Hmm. Um, I include a link to a- John E.T. Robinson's Redating the New Testament. And I also include a book uh, from a um, conservative Presbyterian scholar, although he may have become Anglican now, I'm not sure, um, named Kenneth Gentry, which is all about the date of the book of Revelation. And it's called Before Jerusalem Fell. Hmm. Uh, I have to warn with all these, you know, books coming from a non-Catholic perspective. I'm not going to agree with everything they say, but he's got good points. And so uh, that's an interesting book to read Before Jerusalem Fell on the dating of the book of Revelation. Excellent. Okay. So that that will wrap up our topic. Uh, but stick around because we've got uh, one of our, my favorite parts of the of the show is our feedback. And this week, our mysterious feedback is on uh, the Fermi Paradox episode. And the first uh, bit of feedback comes from John Thomas on Facebook, who says, uh, I would really like to see this conversation go into what the church might do if we establish reliable contact with intelligent alien life. Would we evangelize them? How would we handle their possible religious slash metaphysical understandings? 
It's a very interesting subject. I've commented on it uh, various times in the past, not necessarily on this show, but I can tell you, uh, even though we don't have time really to go into it now, we will be talking about it in future episodes. Uh, you might also check out our uh, original, uh, some episodes we've already done dealing with aliens where we touch on it briefly, but we will be devoting at least one future show specifically to the uh, religious implications of meeting aliens, including aliens who have different religious ideas than we do. Mm, I'm looking forward to that. So, and then we have a comment from uh, Night You on YouTube. Uh, it's a bit long, so uh, so uh, bear with me as I read it. it uh, this is what he says, um, or she. The idea that aliens would have to send out self-replicating probes to discover us seems to me like its own solution to the paradox. First of all, there's the problem that it's likely some places won't offer the right materials and the right quantities for the probes to self-replicate. Also, doing something like that seems like a bad idea in the first place. You'd have to program them very carefully to avoid n numerous possible problems and efficient distribution. Maybe the alien probes haven't reached our part of the universe yet because too many of their probes end up going to the same systems as other probes. Uh, universe pollution, maybe the aliens are environmentalists and don't wish to scatter their probes all over the universe, and decay in the self-replicating process. Maybe this has been tried, but eventually enough errors in self-replication occur that the probes can only reach so many generations away before they cease to successfully function. Also, the aliens would have to be prepared to process all of the data coming at them from the rest of the universe. So much information coming from so many directions at once would likely end up clashing together into nonsensical static. Depending on how the probes send information back, too many messages may even be harmful to the planet and disrupt its welfare in some way. Alternatively, if a probe arrived here and somehow discovered us without being discovered itself, perhaps as an Earth file in an alien database somewhere that will never be noticed because the planet's space program is insufficient to address the exponentially increasing amount of probe data it receives. <clears throat> that sounds like some certain databases that I know. That assumes <laughs> they weren't forced to abandon the project in order to defend against their own probes returning to their planet and consuming all of its resources in their effort to self-replicate. In any case, I like to imagine that intelligent aliens chose against original sin and they just know to stay away from us and our fallen world. Perhaps God told them they may explore any part of the universe he created for them except for the planet of knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> so, uh, so in other words, all these worlds are yours except Earth. Attempt no landings there. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I think Knight Yu's uh, comment is very insightful. Uh, I've thought about a lot of these issues in the past. We really didn't go into them in detail in the show, but there are a, a bunch of challenges that Knight Yu has correctly identified that aliens de designing self-replicating probes or what are known as von Neumann probes uh, would have to take account of. You know, you are going to have issues like, okay, you're going to send them to some solar systems and they're not going to find what they need to replicate. Well, that's going to be taken care of in theory by all the other probes going to the other systems. Um, they just need to report back on the one system they are in if they, if they find it's all gas giants and can't make anything out of it. Um, also, you're going to have to deal with how do you channel the data around? How do you avoid problems with uh, replication error? So you're going to want lots of checksums, uh, you know, uh, being checked out as they self-replicate to keep them from mutating. Those are real uh, logistical issues. In terms, one thought that I've had in terms of r routing data around, I would not have them beam it directly back to my home solar system because I don't want people using the probes to find out where my home solar system is. <laughs> right. I'm going to have it routed to a data hub that is behind a a space firewall IP <laughs> privacy service 
to keep the location of my home system secret. I, I would think also that there's a, there's a, a scale that we have to keep in mind, which is the the spans of time. Because again, we're not mm-hmm. these aren't traveling faster than light. So the spans no. of time between when probes would report back from different systems, we're this talking millions of years. Millions of years. So it's not like they're all reporting back in the span of a day or two. We're talking that that the stuff. All of this happens in, over the course in, of millions of years, theoretically. In, unless, unless they all just start continuously live streaming the solar systems they're in. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, a, but thank you for the, that that comment. It was a uh, it was yeah. it was a, a good, uh, very a, insightful. Yeah, very insightful. So, uh, Jimmy, uh, some mysterious headlines this week. One okay, that's so, maybe related to yeah. today. So since we talked about the red heifer, uh, guess what? Um, there <laughs> are claims that a red heifer that meets the right rabbinical requirements to be used uh, has been born in Israel, and uh, some uh, Jewish Christian, some uh, Jews who are wanting to rebuild the temple have been very interested in that, and as have some Christians who see this as a potential sign of a restored temple and thus of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. So check out the link about the uh, possible red heifer being born. Um, Also, have a story that could be viewed as the dawn of the Borg. Uh, You may have heard about uh, scientists creating mind-brain or brain interfaces where they can use uh, ways of monitoring people's thoughts to, like, say, have paraplegic people control, you know, things robotically and stuff as a way of hopefully developing prosthetics in the future. So we've had some kind of brain monitoring techniques that have allowed people to influence their environment. Well, now they've hooked up uh, three people for the first time into a three-person brain network um, where they played a version of Tetris together. So you had uh, all three of them cooperating to play the game successfully. They were making decisions uh, based on what two of them could see and then one of them could execute. And uh, so we've now had, even though it's really primitive, three people linked together in a decision-making brain network. So Mm. Borg Collective, here we come. Check out the (laughs) link on that. Your uh, distinctiveness will be assimilated for the solutions to Tetris. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, I have to say, but the red heifer being born, there Mm -hmm. have been other red heifers born in, I remember decades ago hearing about it. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. And often they're disqualified based on a minor flaw. Really, the Bible, and this is just my personal view, but modern rabbinic standards, I think, are way beyond the standards that would have been required in the actual Old Testament. Right. But they have to be like totally red, not even a little patch of white and stuff like that. And I think in the Old Testament, no, just get a red cow. (laughs) It's not deformed. Right. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Jimmy. Uh, So remember to uh, folks to like uh, the, the, the podcast wherever you find it. To send us your comments, to comment online, and send it to us. To subscribe to the podcast, to get notifications, and make sure you share the podcast with others to help us grow our community of listeners. And to if to support the show by going to sqpn.com/give and to make a pledge and to receive your gift that we'd like to share with you uh, for your support. Uh, that's it from us. So let us know what you think about uh, what uh, Jimmy had to say today about Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple. Uh, you can do so by going to sqpn.com and leaving a comment on the show uh, post there 
or go to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, the Facebook page. Leave us some feedback there. Or you can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. You can find the links uh, for the resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes on sqpn.com. Until next time, uh, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks very much, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. This is Dom Bettinelli again. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and that you'll help us keep producing the podcasts you love. Thank you for your generosity. To make your pledge and find out about the free thank you gifts we'd like to send you, visit sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give.